You know, that's a, that's a kind of profound song, ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. Um, I think when we come at the scriptures, as it says there, with an open heart, that the, those words definitely will have their, do their work in us. And um, certainly they have for me this week. Um, and as I said last week, I genuinely do not look forward to preaching about money any more than you look forward to hearing about it. But today's gospel reading, and in fact, all of today's readings relate directly to money. And again, I didn't get to choose them. So here we go again. But this time, I hope from a different perspective than last week. It is, for most of us, an inconvenient truth that Jesus teaches more about money than any other single issue in the Gospels. Eleven of his 39 parables are directly about money. Money is so vitally important because Jesus says more than any other thing, it resonates with and even reveals your heart, what you love. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We are just deeply connected to our money. This was reality for people in Jesus' day, and it is reality for us today. And so if we desire to have a healthy relationship with our money, which I hope all of us does, we must listen to what the scriptures have to say, even when it's difficult or awkward for us. In Luke chapter 16, which we looked at last week, Jesus is talking to Pharisees who were lovers of money. We're told that plainly in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him, trying to justify themselves by making Jesus look foolish. What had they heard after hearing all these things? They had heard he had just told them the parable of the shrewd steward in verses 1 through 13. The aim of that parable is to get us to see that we are not owners. We are simply stewards of God's resources. Everything that we have, our time, our talent, and our treasure is God's, not ours. And we will be held responsible for how we use them. That's the point of Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? In some mysterious way, our habits with money today convey into eternity. The possession of our resources in this world is kind of a test run. And so God is asking, are you trustworthy? with everything that you have. Are you faithful as a steward? Can I trust you? These questions are central to the vocational call of every disciple of Jesus in every place at every time. So when we think about the resources we have, we must remember foundationally that everything God says is from my hand to yours. This reality ought to recalibrate our relationship with money and hopefully help us unclench our fists a little because it's not ours anyway. So on to today's readings. 
What I see as an incredibly insightful quotation came to mind last Tuesday as I was meditating on today's lectionary readings because of something they exposed, they, they, something they revealed in me. What I'm coming to see as a pernicious kind of indifference. The Romanian writer Elie Wiesel, survivor of Auschwitz and Buchenwald concentration camps during the Holocaust and 1986 Nobel Peace Prize laureate, famously and I believe accurately wrote, there is no love without hate and there is no hate without love, but the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And here's how that revelation came to light in me. Monday is my day off, and after teaching a couple of flight lessons in the morning, which both had their ups and downs, <laughs> if you know what I mean, wink, wink, I sat down at my computer for my daily dose of news. And top of the list was Hurricane Fiona, having made landfall in Puerto Rico on Sunday, leaving eight dead and over two million people in flooded conditions without power, clean water, and food. Conditions perfect for the spread of just awful and deadly sickness and disease. I thought, man, that's terrible. But then moved immediately on to the next thing. In fact, I literally didn't think about it again until that afternoon when my youngest son, Craig, called. He'd recently lost his job doing branding work in the men's fashion industry and had, two days before, interviewed for a job doing similar kind of work with an exceptional Christian nonprofit called Mercy Chefs that he knew of through the daughter and son-in-law of the founders who were classmates of his, not the founders, the daughter and son-in-law, who were classmates of his from the King's College in New York City. We have some King's parents here. Mercy Chefs was founded in 2006 by Chef Gary LeBlanc and his wife Anne. After witnessing firsthand the destruction in Gary's hometown of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. It was founded on the belief that disaster victims, first responders, and recovery volunteers needed and deserved safe, hot, chef-prepared, restaurant-quality meals and clean, safe drinking water, all in the name of Jesus. I won't go into a lot of detail. It's, it's an incredibly inspiring story, but They've since served over 20 million meals in disaster zones all over the US and around the world. They're currently deployed in Ukraine and as of Tuesday afternoon, Puerto Rico. The latter is why Craig called. Although they hadn't yet made him a formal offer, they wanted him to come to work for them and they needed him in San Juan the following afternoon as part of an advanced team of five. Oh, and he should be prepared to go without a shower or power for a few days and sleep in a car. Anyway, guess who was now very interested in conditions in Puerto Rico? This guy. 
But up until that point, however, I had been what could only be called indifferent to the real suffering of millions of people. Now, there, I have to caveat this by saying, I think this, this is sometimes because of the immense scope of, of disasters or their geographic distance from us or just the sheer number of suffering people in the world. It is overwhelming. I mean, where do we even start? We can't take responsibility for everything. What I'm reluctant to admit though is that I hadn't even stopped long enough to pray for Puerto Rico and its suffering, or even thought to. Tuesday then, as I was reading through and meditating on the passages we read today, it slowly dawned on me just how insidious and dangerous indifference is, especially indifference to those who are suffering and how indifferent I myself had become. And I'm not just talking about huge, far-off humanitarian disasters. I'm talking about in my daily life, a life where I used to live in downtown Annapolis and would walk every day there, and I always made sure to be carrying a bundle of $1 bills so that I could be ready to give to whoever asked me. Now, I live kind of a little bit out in the suburbs, and when I walk, I walk over to the Naval Academy and step onto the yard and walk there. It's quite lovely, and there's very few destitute people that you run into. It's gotten to the point that, you know, I mean, I, I don't carry cash, but I also don't make it a point to go to the bank and get any. But I'm, I'm finding myself at stoplights now when people are there begging, refusing to make eye contact with them, rolling up my window, um, avoiding the people standing outside grocery stores, where I didn't used to do that. This is just kind of slowly and perniciously taken root in me. But the charge the prophet Amos leveled was that while the rich, of whom I am one by the world's standards, the rich in Israel had cared extravagantly for their own needs and desires, but they had become indifferent to the suffering and needs of those around them, and it would cost them their nation. The rich man in the parable Jesus told, the man who'd clothed himself in purple and fine linen and eaten sumptuously every day, was completely indifferent to the misery of poor Lazarus, who he'd passed at the gate to his house every day. And it cost him his eternal destiny. So I'd like to consider the serious, I mean, this is heavy, I'm sorry. I'd like to consider the seriousness of, of indifference, of the indifference described in the Old Testament Gospels. And then the incredibly provocative bit of hope for the world that's buried in the psalm that we read today. So first, Amos. We're going to look at uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. If you don't know where Amos is, I will teach you where Amos is because I learned a Sunday school song when I was a little boy called Can You Sing the Minor Prophets that is sung to the tune of When We All Work Together. So now you know the tune. The lyrics are in the index of your Bible. <laughs> this is the chorus. 
to Can You Sing the Minor Prophets? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So now, literally, in college and seminary, every time I had to look at a minor prophet, I'd go, <laughs> okay, I know exactly where it is. Hosea, Joel, Amos. It's between Joel and Obadiah. We know nothing about Amos apart from what he says about himself in two verses in chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. And his reluctant one-off prophecy was written during the time of the divided kingdom, sometime during the reigns of Uzziah, king of Judah in the south, and Jeroboam, king of Israel in the north, probably around 760 or so years before the birth of Jesus, give or take a decade or two in either direction. He was a contemporary of Isaiah, Michael, Jonah, and Hosea. Isaiah and Micah were prophets to Judah in the south, Amos, Jonah, and Hosea, prophets to Israel in the north. During this time, both Jonah and, or Judah and Israel were blessed with very little outside harassment, particularly from the Assyrians and unusually stable governments. I mean, these guys served for a long time. As a result of these two factors, both of these nations were experiencing a, time of, experiencing a time of wealth and prosperity unparalleled since the time of Solomon. This was particularly true in the northern kingdom Israel. Judah tended to be more isolated from the world at large and possessed less arable land than did Israel. So when the chance to amass wealth and the trappings of prosperity presented themselves, Israel was in a better position to capitalize on those opportunities. By the way, you are going to see some parallels here to our current day. And as has tended to be true throughout history, the Israelites took this wealth and prosperity to be unmistakable signs of the blessing of God. They were, in their minds, destined to be the rulers of the world. Their riches, in the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 16, or 617, which we looked at today or read today, had made them haughty. Their hope being sent, set on wealth's uncertainty. But in fact, Amos prophesies their prosperity was not a sign of that blessing at all. They were in reality under the curse of God because of their egregious breaches of their covenant with him. Most of their wealth had been amassed at the expense of the poor whom the rich and powerful were treating with indifference for which they would pay a very high price. All of that is context to the charge that we read today from Amos chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory. Now, candidly, I prefer a Tempur-Pedic, but hey, whatever floats your boat. Woe to those who lay on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. In other words, the very choicest and tenderest meat. 
who sing idle songs in the, uh, to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. In other words, they were not grieved over the poorest members, the ruined of, of the two tribes that were the majority population of the northern kingdom, the two tribes that are named after Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. They were indifferent to their poor neighbors. That was their sin. They are not grieved over the ruin of, of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. So what Israel saw as the beginning of its golden age was actually the last flush of a terminal disease. And it was Amos's unhappy task to disabuse them of their selfish and ungodly assumptions. Such was their indifference that not only was Israel not going to be the first among nations, Within a few years, they wouldn't exist as a nation at all and would continue to exist as a people only by the unmerited grace of God. So far from being a day of light, the day of the Lord would now be for them a day of utter darkness. So now on to today's gospel. In Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, following the story of the shrewd steward, Jesus tells another story about money. In it, we're introduced to a rich man dressed in regal splendor, clothed in purple, feasting sumptuously every day while a poor man named Lazarus lies at his gate, starving and covered with sores, conveying the utter indifference of the rich man for the poverty-stricken person living right in the shadow of his opulent self-indulgence. Though Lazarus would have gladly eaten even what fell off the rich man's table, there's no indication in the story that the rich man ever gave him anything. So destitute and miserable was Lazarus that filthy, feral, stray dogs came and licked his sores, the culmination of his misery. Then in verse 22, the inexorable end comes to both of them. And as it will to every one of us, they die. The ratio is still one to one. Lazarus received no burial in contrast to the rich man, but Lazarus in his death was carried by angels to Abraham's side, literally his bosom, which means he was welcomed into the fellowship of other believers already in heaven. But the rich man was consigned to Hades, home of the wicked dead and a place of eternal torment. The previous earthly circumstances of the rich man and Lazarus were now being completely reversed. This is a complex parable, so it's really hard to know like how far to push all the details of the story. <laughs> but one thing seems absolutely clear, the indifferent merciless one now begs for mercy and he will never receive it. It's too late. I mean, this is serious, serious stuff. But let's just juxtapose these sobering passages from Amos and Luke with what's written about God's heart 
in Psalm 146, particularly verses five through nine. We read it today. Blessed is he whose help is in the God. By, by the way, we, we read from the, um, the Psalter in the prayer book, which is called the Coverdale Psalter. I am reading from the English Standard Version, so it's not going to line up precisely. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in him, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now, you can easily read through this passage and not catch its significance. But let's stop for just a few minutes. I mean, it's curious, isn't it, that the phrase, the Lord loves the righteous, is buried right in the middle of all those other descriptors. Does that mean the oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, the widows, the fatherless, those who are bowed down, the truly suffering are somehow the righteous because of their suffering, as if suffering is an attribute of righteousness? Or, or I, No, I don't think so. I think it's because, rather this, because the righteous are actually the solution to these things. Let me explain. A deeply held but often eye-rolling value of Wishart Men is quoting our favorite movies. <clears throat> and judged by all the quoting, maybe the best shtick in the cult classic, The Princess Bride, besides Stop That Rhyming, Now I Mean It, Does Anybody Want a Peanut? Yeah, you could finish that one. But our middle son never did get this right until he went off to college. He would always say, uh, stop that rhyming, I mean it now. And you're like, does anybody want to milk a cow? He would, it would always just throw him for a loop. But the best shtick besides that has to be Inigo Montoya's retort on about the 49th time Vizig exclaims, inconceivable. You keep using that word, he says but I do not think it means what you think it means. Now, I, I say that because it is incredibly unfortunate that the word righteousness or the righteous has been flattened today to primarily, if not exclusively, connote some kind of usually off-putting personal piety. It's a word we keep using, but I do not think it means what we think it means because the ancient biblical conception of righteousness and of the, uh, of the righteous is far more robust, expansive, and good, not just for us, but also for our neighbors. In fact, Proverbs 11.10, one of my personal favorites, says something totally counter, counterintuitive to our ears. It says this, when the righteous prosper... The city rejoices. Why? Because the righteous, the Hebrew word sadakim, the word that's used in Psalm 146, are the just. The people who follow God's heart and ways and who see everything they have as 
as gifts from God to be stewarded for his purposes. The righteous, therefore, are not indifferent. The righteous are, by definition, those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for their neighbors, while the wicked are those who put their own economic, social, and personal needs ahead of the needs of others. This definition of righteousness, this, this description of righteousness, is the only thing that makes this verse at all sensible. Otherwise, it wouldn't be. You just have a bunch of good people sitting around being good. After all, there are these people in the city who are prospering, flourishing in their jobs, their health, their finances. This fortunate group has dominion, wealth, and standing. They're at the top. And as they thrive, the entire city, including those at the bottom, celebrates. Given human nature, that is just strange. A more plausible and familiar scenario would be marked by anger, jealousy, and resentment from those at the bottom of the economic ladder. Instead, the prospering of the righteous is a cause for rejoicing because the tzadakim view pr uh, prosperity not as a means for self-enrichment or self-aggrandizement, but rather as a means for blessing others. Everyone benefits from their success. As the tzadakim prosper, they steward everything, their time, their talent, their treasure, money, vocational position and expertise, assets, resources, opportunities, education, relationships, social position, for the common good, for, advancing, for the advancing of God's justice and shalom. And when the people at the top act like this, and by the way, by, as I said, by the world standard, we're all pretty much at the top, the whole community cheers. Imagine that. When the righteous prosper, life gets better for everyone. And the word rejoice in, in, in Proverbs 11.10 is a very important. It's a unique term, and it's only used one other time in the Old Old Testament, it carries military connotations and describes the ecstatic joy, the exultation and triumph people express in celebration when they've been delivered from the hand of an oppressor. So rejoice is a big, robust word, too. It's, it's deep, passionate rejoicing. Not a kind of happy, clappy birthday party, but a World War II VE Day rejoicing. The war is over. It's that kind of rejoicing. It's soul-soaring exaltation. Exaltation. So the righteous in their prospering must be making a remarkably positive difference in their city. They, they must be stewarding their time, talent, and treasure for the common good to bring about noticeable and significant transformation. Otherwise, what would be prompting the residents there to go crazy with gladness and gratitude? Clearly, the Tzadakim's stewardship entails much more than taking old clothes and junk to goodwill. No, this dancing in the streets rejoicing occurs when the Tzadakim advance justice and shalom in such ways 
that vulnerable people at the bottom stop being oppressed, start having genuine opportunity, and begin to enjoy spiritual and physical health and sufficiency and security. That's what the righteous do. It doesn't have to mean leaving a good paying vocation to start a nonprofit, though I'm really glad Gary and Anne LeBlanc did with Mercy Chefs. They're exactly the kind of people we should want to prosper because so many suffering people have reason to rejoice that they otherwise wouldn't. And hey, there are innumerable small and grand creative ways we can pursue this kind of righteousness in the cultures that we inhabit. But maybe we should begin simply by repenting of our indifference. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. By the way, there is a display of Mercy Chef's work this week in um, Puerto Rico in uh, the lobby when you go out. And just in case, the I would say get online and read their story. It's, it's really incredible. But in case you felt like you wanted to help them feed people there, there's a, a QR code that you can just use your phone to, to access. So thank you.